Good morning. I'm Ron Jackson, and I'm actually uh, on your paid staff. Uh, it's hard to believe, but I do that for a living. Uh, I also do a lot of counseling on staff. My job is actually called Pastor of Counseling. And there's a few hours each week I get to see the public in council. The rest of the time I'm busy counseling the staff. Uh, and uh, trying to get them through their neuroses, their worry, their concern for you. Uh, it's a very caring, very neurotic kind of a staff, but I love them dearly and they love you. Uh, a lot of people aren't quite sure what therapy is all about or counseling is all about. I found this short little clip that maybe will give you an idea. This is really what I do day in and day out. That's why yellow makes me sad, I think. That's interesting. You know what makes me sad? You do! Maybe we should chug on over to Mamby Pamby land where maybe we can find some self-confidence for you, you jackwagon! Yeah. <laughs> I work Monday through Friday. <laughs> I do have openings, lots of them now. My wife said if I showed that I wouldn't get any more clients. I hope she's wrong. One of the things I enjoyed growing up was listening to music. One of my favorite composers, and I'm dating myself here now, was uh, Leonard Bernstein, who was the marvelous head of the New York Philharmonic. And he used to do concerts for children. Uh, and he would basically just talk about the instruments. He'd play music the kids would like. And I remember one time he was asked the question, what is the most difficult instrument in the orchestra to play? And he responded, the second fiddle. You see, we all are willing to be in the limelight, to be the top dog, to be the one out front, the star pitcher, the cleanup hitter, but nobody wants to be the left fielder. Nobody wants to be the second fiddle. Today, as we continue in our study of the book of Acts, we're going to look at the life of a man who was remarkable in the accomplishments of what he did and the influence that he had. But he always played second fiddle. He was a master teacher, but never wrote about himself. He gave generously to the early church and chose never to draw credit to himself. He wanted firsthand experiences and risked his life. And he lived through those things. He was instrumental in getting the gospel out as he went on the first missionary journey. He helped kind of make up what his mission's all about. He was part of that team. He believed that people mattered more than just institutions. He believed that people who failed deserve a second chance. Actually, he went by a nickname. We never really call him by his real name, but always by his nickname. And there's very few verses about him, but when you look at the verses and put them in context, which is what I'm going to try to do today, I think you'll realize that this man was rather remarkable. So let's take a look at nicknames for a second, though. Some of you may have had those as a child growing up, and some of you have had therapy to kind of overcome those <laughs> nicknames. I know that's what drove me into therapy, is my brother's nickname for me. And no, I'm not going to tell you what it is. But I will tell you that the word skinny no longer belongs with my name. <laughs> Let's talk about some nicknames. See if you can tell me the name of the real, the real person's name as I give you their nickname. 
Okay, Scarface. Al Capone, very good. For those of you that are history buffs, he was a president of the United States, and his nickname was The Professor. Wilson. You know, this side got it first service, too. Did you guys know that there's two services? Okay, well, that side got it again. Very good. This is a sports figure. It was given to him by a writer, and it's stuck with him. He's known by it today. It's one word, magic. Johnson, that's right. This is another figure, not from sports, but from music. He came up with the one-word name for himself, as bizarre as music can be. His name was Sting. Anybody know his real name? Gordon Sumner, another fan. Do you have all of his records? Okay. Um, here's one that nobody got in first service. She, he was orphaned at 15, had 12 husbands, and her name was Calamity Jane. Anybody know her real name? Martha Jane Canary. Now, 11 of her husbands died mysteriously. Her 11th husband was just quick. So, <laughs> uh, they might have called him Lucky. Uh, by the way, uh, Calamity Jane is buried in Wyoming. My wife and I drew through drove through Wyoming this summer, and no, we did not get off the freeway to see your grave. I didn't really care. <laughs> okay, this one you all know. It's been in the news the last few months. The nickname is Wizard of Westwood. John Wooden, that's right. What an impact he had. And then how about this for a name? Joseph of Cyprus. Barnabas, all right. Somebody figured that out. That's who we're talking about, Barnabas. A guy who's probably only four verses in the whole scripture about, but when you put those verses in context, what a powerful impact they make. Uh, Barnabas was a Levite, and briefly a Levite is somebody who worked in the temple courts. He was the tribe of Levite. He would help with the sacrifices, examining the animals and all that. So he was kind of a Jew of Jews. I mean, he knew his stuff. He knew the law. He worked in the temple. And he was one of those early converts to the church, gave himself over to the church, because in the beginning, the church was actually considered a part of Judaism. Some people called it the cult of Judaism. In fact, the Romans referred to that, that Jewish cult called Christians. So the church was not yet distinct, and Barnabas was a part of that. Our first introduction to Barnabas comes from Acts 35 and 37, let me read to that out of your notes, and I think there's some up on your screen here. There we find, There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of land or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed through such as they had need. Notice the first part of that verse said, Nobody had a need. This was not a, hey, folks, the budget's low, the lights are going off, the air conditioner's going off, you better give or we're in trouble. Everybody had what they needed. But Barnabas, the apostle Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, which is an island, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Laying it at the apostles' feet is really a sign of humility. He did not really try to, you know, give a designated gift. I want to buy a bus, and you call it the bus Barnabas. He just gave it. 
He put it at the apostles' feet. No strings attached. This was Barnabas, a man without guile, without pretense, quietly distributing his money. But others heard about it. And as we heard last week, Ananus and Phyrus tried the same thing. And their result was death. Why? They faked it. They want to make a big show about it, and they ended up dying for that big show. Barnabas gave out of the goodness of his heart. So our first introduction is that Barnabas is a giver. He's a supporter. He does whatever he can to give. What a great son of encouragement he was. The second story about Barnabas, though, is rather obscure, but it involves a very prominent man, a man who's not about to be second fiddle to anyone. Let me tell you that story briefly in a nutshell, which is hard to do. It's a tough nut to crack. This person is Saul. Now, Saul was also part of the temple. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He was a zealot for God. He was what you might even call, and I don't use this word lightly, he was a terrorist against the church. He hated Christians. He hated this cult. So much so that he said to the temple leaders, if you give me permission, I will rid the world of this church. And Saul was full of hatred and anger and bitterness to the point where he actually rejoiced at the death of a leader of the church, Stephen. So the church knew who Saul was. He had made a very ugly and nasty introduction. He had ravaged the church in Jerusalem. He had caused nothing but problems. And he actually had seen one of the major church leaders, Stephen, killed, murdered in front of everybody. And no doubt at that time, Christians in Jerusalem began to make themselves a little bit harder to find, a little bit harder to see. And then we find out that a church springs up in a city called Damascus. Now, Damascus is kind of where it is today. It's in Jordan. It's a few hundred miles away from uh, Jerusalem, or maybe about 150 miles away from Jerusalem. And in there was a very large Jewish population. And so Saul, no doubt, said, if I can stomp out the satellite, I'll come back and I'll take care of the church in Jerusalem. So Saul takes off to go to Damascus, and you know the story well. He's partway to Damascus, a huge mass of light that blinds the, uh, uh, Saul. The thundering roar that everybody else heard is just loud noise. But Saul heard a voice in that that said, Saul? I am the Messiah. I am the one you're pushing against. You're kicking against a spear, against swords. Stop it. I want you for my own. Saul is blinded at this point. How can he kill Christians when he can't see them? Three days he spends in a house, not eating, not sleeping. His entire world, his entire Jewishness, coming apart in strands, as he says, was this Jesus, the Messiah? The one we put to death? The one I fight against? And, and Saul is so distraught with this. We find another second fiddle, a guy by the name of Ananias. Not the same Ananias that died in Jerusalem. This might have been his first cousin, but another Christian who with great fear and trembling goes to Saul. 
and, said, and, re, and confirms to him, Jesus is the Christ, the one you fight against. Paul's, I mean Saul's sight is restored. And he decides he has to think about this. The scriptures tell us that Saul then leaves Damascus and goes to Arabia for three years. Now, some of you are saying, Arabia, it's a long way away. Why would he go there? Well, Arabia basically means he went to a desert region, 60, 70 miles to study Damascus, all the sand you could want. So Saul goes out there to consider what had gone on in his life. His entire world had been turned upside down. You have to remember this guy had a Ph.D. in Jew. He knew the temple. He knew the law. He knew the books of the Old Testament. He knew the prophets. And he somehow had to begin to filter this all again through three years of isolation and growth and depth of his faith. Well, while his faith might have grown, I don't think his personality grew very much. I'm taking license with that, but I'm a professional. <laughs> and so what happens is after three years... Saul goes back into Damascus, where he had come to destroy the church. Now he finds a church, and he begins debating within the church. Not with Christians, but with the Jews living in, in uh, Damascus. And they get so upset that Saul is so obnoxious, probably, about his faith, a real zealot for God, that there's a riot. One thing Rome hated was riots. And the way Rome would handle riots is, everybody in line up, you're all dead. They would kill everybody. And if you look in Roman history, you'll find out thousands of people in a city were often just taken out and killed. Kind of like, okay, any other protesters? I didn't think so. So Damascus didn't want him. He was causing trouble. So it was so upsetting that the city of Damascus put guards by every single gate with orders Kill him on sight. Take care of him. We want nothing of him. Think what Saul then had to go through. It was this church in Damascus that lovingly wrapped Saul in a blanket, put him in a basket, risking their own lives in the middle of the night, pull him up the walls on the one side, drag that basket across the wall, Lean it over to the side, then let him down again. How would you feel? You would come to kill the very people. You look up into their faces as they're letting you down. At any moment, they could have said, Yeah, you're fake, Saul, and let go of the rope. But they didn't. They risked their lives to save this persecutor of the church. Saul could not rescue himself, he needed the church. And they spared his life by risking their own. Well, when Paul gets to the other side, he takes off to go back to Jerusalem. He needs to confirm his testimony and his call by God with the leaders of the church. But notice what happens here in Acts chapter 9. And when he had come to Jerusalem, that's Saul, he attempted to join the disciples. And they were all afraid of him. Of course. Last time he was there, he murdered one of them. They did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them 
how he on the road had seen the Lord who spoke to him, and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. Who introduced Saul to the early church leaders? Who walked Saul into that private catacomb, that private place, and said, here's Peter. Peter, here's Saul. James, John, Nathan. Here's the man who came to persecute the church. He told me his story of what happened in Damascus Road. I believe him. I put my reputation in the line for this man named Saul. And the disciples listened to Saul's testimony, were amazed. Praise God. The man who came to persecute now comes to bring life. But some things about Saul just don't change. You see, the Acts tells us that in the 15 days he was there meeting with the leaders, apparently they took lunch breaks. And Saul began to again argue with the Jewish people there and with the Greek people there. And remember, Saul had left Jerusalem with letters from the temple priests. He had been their go-to man. He was their terrorist. And suddenly they kind of go, he's what? Bring him to me. And there was a riot in Jerusalem all over again. Once again, the church gathers around Saul, and they say here, they take him to Caesarea. Those of you who go to Israel, they'll take you to Caesarea. Most of Caesarea is underwater. It sank. But it was a marvelous, marvelous port that was, that was just full and bustling. And here they took Saul. They had heard his testimony. They had experienced the riots. They had gone through difficult times. And Acts says that they put him on a boat and said, Saul, go home to Tarsus. Don't call us, we'll call you. At this time, Paul's probably about 40 years old, the prime of his life, eager, strong, a great testimony that few could ever match. But everywhere he went, he found a way to get people upset and angry and riots broke out. Now Saul is gone. He's gone back to Tarsus. We never read of Saul doing anything in Tarsus. He might have made tents, but there's no church. There's no missionary journey. We don't know much of anything. And some scholars say that Saul may have spent as many as six years in Tarsus on the bench. On the bench. And I believe God was working on Saul's character. Notice, though, the result when Saul is out of the picture. Acts 9.31 So the church throughout all Judea, Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. Whoa, the church is actually growing and Saul's on the bench. The church did not need Saul. Saul needed to grow up. He needed to soften his approach, not his belief in Christ. But everywhere Saul had gone, he had caused trouble. Well, lo and behold, something else unique happens. Up until now, the entire church had always begun with mostly Jewish Christians. 
but a church in Antioch springs up. Antioch's a fairly large city in the ancient times, and it's all almost all Gentile believers, Greeks, non-believers. Bizarre. How do these people hear the gospel? Read an Acts, you'll find out how. Um, but these people come to the Lord. They're growing. They're magnificent. It's, it's really the words getting out. And the church in Jerusalem says, we don't know what's going on. Who do we send? Let's send Barnabas. And so they send Barnabas. And, and uh, a number believed there. And it says, the report came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, Acts 11, and sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them to remain faithful in the Lord with steadfast purpose. Can you believe it? Remember now, Barnabas is a Jew of Jews, just like Saul. He knew all the things that you needed to do to become a Jew. He also knew what it meant to have faith in Christ and how that changes things. And he goes to Antioch, and they're almost all Gentiles, almost all Greeks that had committed their life to Christ. And Barnabas' first thought to them is, well done, good for you, you've got it right. And then Barnabas realized, there's a lot of you guys, aren't there? And the church was growing by leaps and bounds. What does Barnabas do? Eleven twenty-four. Well, this talks about Barnabas' character here. For Barnabas was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. Barnabas was a good teacher. He was considered a good man. And even here in Antioch, his reputation preceded him. But so Barnabas went to Tarsus. Who's in Tarsus? Saul. He's sitting on the bench, building tents. And when he had found Saul, he took him to Antioch. For a while there, for that, for that year, he taught the church and a great many people rejoiced. And it was at Antioch that you and I were first called Christians. Another nickname. We were called Christians there. Notice what's different about it. Barnabas left Antioch to go find Paul. Notice it said he had to find him. There wasn't a road sign that said, Paul, down this road, Paul's tent making, Saul had gone to basically mellow in his faith. Six years, the prime of his life, he was waiting for God to do something with him. And Barnabas shows up. Can you imagine the rejoicing that must have been? It was Barnabas who greeted Saul in Jerusalem. And Saul was accepted and loved. Now to hear is in Tarsus in the shadow, falls across the tent that Saul is working on. He looks up and it's Barnabas. Barnabas smiles and said, Hey, Saul, you ready to get back in the game? Yes! I'm ready to serve my Lord. And notice something different here. Saul and Barnabas return to Antioch and they teach there for a year. Notice anything that's missing? No more riots, <laughs> no more killings. The church prospers, becomes established, begins to grow. And there are no riots or, or any destruction at all. Saul, I believe, had begun to mellow somewhat with the edge taken off by a man like Barnabas, 
who always played second fiddle in this way. Now, when they finally left Antioch, after about a year there, they come back to Jerusalem. Now Saul's accepted. Hey, we're happy now that he's coming into town. And the church rejoiced and said, we cannot believe at the tremendous result of what happened at Antioch. I bet the, the Gentiles all over the world would eagerly accept this gospel of Christ. We've got to send somebody to go there. Hmm, who do we send? Hey, I got an idea. Somebody not maybe needed to be so bright. But basically he said, how about Barnabas and Saul? Great idea. And so the first missionary journey was going to take place. Off they were going to go. The firebrand Saul and Barnabas, the son of... What a perfect team. And as they're getting ready to go, Barnabas adds one more thing to this first missionary journey. Uh, By the way, I want to bring my nephew along. His name is John Mark. He's my nephew. He's a good kid. You know, we've had him over for Thanksgiving a few times. You know, he's a really good I like him a lot. And I think he's got a lot to do. He writes well. In fact, he's working on a book. You know, those type of things. Okay, okay, well, bring him along. Why not? You know, the more the merrier. So off they go on this first missionary journey. In the very beginning of this missionary journey, they just about get to some of the cities in Turkey. And the scripture says, very mysteriously, and John Mark turned away. He goes back to Jerusalem. What? Is is this a mommy's boy? What happened? His mother's living in Jerusalem, by the way, for John Mark. But John Mark quits. Now, lest you simply say, okay, the guy had a stomach ache, his sandals broke, you know, his robe got a snag. Um, You know, if you watch Saul's reaction, or he later changes his name to Paul, Paul's reaction to John Mark later on, you go, This was no just, hey, I got a headache, I got a toothache, I got to go home. Paul felt betrayed and abandoned by him. Saul and Barnabas now come back from their first missionary journey, report to the church while we zip. It's incredible. We got to do this again. Paul and Barnabas sign up again. Dotted line. Yep, another commitment. Let's go. And as we're getting ready to go, Barnabas says, hey, I know this is like an old shoe, but I'm bringing John Mark again. And Paul says, no, you're not. Oh, yes, I am. No, you're not. He abandoned us. He left us. He's a coward. I don't want him around. I don't want him on the same boat I'm on. I don't want to see that guy's face again. Such was the anger of the apostle Paul. And Barnabas, that second fiddle, the man of peace, the encourager, finally said, fine, this is too big of an endeavor to stop because of my desires. Saul, you pick someone else, I'm going to stay home. And so Saul picked Silas, and off they go on to new adventures in the New Testament, preaching the gospel of Christ. That is the last time in Scripture we ever hear about Barnabas. He never makes it to the second missionary journey. Neither does John Mark. So what really happens? Well, we have to kind of read between the lines here. One of the things we know is that uh, when the Apostle Paul later on had been preaching, probably 15 years had gone by, 
Paul is now in prison, facing a death sentence. And he begins to write some of these strange words in some of his letters. In, in 1 Peter, um, in talking about somebody, he says, I have a son named Mark. Now, we didn't think he had a real son. We think this is the John Mark we're talking about. So where did John Mark come from? We don't know. But I believe somewhere along the line, this son of encouragement, this Barnabas, had a good long talk in many meetings with John Mark and said, one failure does not make you a failure. Just because you turn back, you've got to remember, Saul got a new lease on life. You can have a new lease on life. You are not a failure, John Mark. Get back in the game. And somewhere along the line, somewhere on one of these journeys, Paul had to be preaching and looked up, and in the back of the room was John Mark. And John Mark would have said, Here I am, Paul. Deal with me. I'm here. So useful did John Mark become for the Apostle Paul that he was given the name of Son. At the time that Saul was about to be executed in Rome, he said, Send to me Mark, for he is very useful to me. Very useful indeed. Scholars say that some of the letters of Peter, some of the letters of Paul were written by a scribe. Guess what John Mark did for a living? Ah, he was a scribe. And he wrote many of these things. He had become useful. And here Paul is in prison in Rome. And if you went to visit a prisoner in Rome, you had to sign a book. Are you the one coming to visit that condemned prisoner, the Paul? Then sign your name next to his. And John Mark was no longer afraid. He didn't quiver like he did on that first missionary journey. He boldly signed his name. He identified himself with the Apostle Paul. He identified himself with the church. I think because he had an uncle that did not give up on him. And what did we get as a result of all that? Well, one, never heard of the Gospel of Mark? Written by John Mark. Some of the letters, a gospel, all those things redeemed by a young man that somebody spoke into his life and said, you're not done, John. You're not, you didn't lose. You're not all over. I believe in a God of second chances. And John Mark had that second chance. So let me bring this to conclusion. What did we learn from the life of Barnabas? Brief, second fiddle, always in the background, profoundly influential. Do you have a Barnabas in your life? You need one in this day and age. I know as I do counseling with people, I have so many that come into my office and they're burdened primarily with two big issues. Not everyone, but a lot. One is depression. People struggle with depression terribly. And depression usually is a God-given gift that talks about a loss. Somewhere along the line, we've lost something. Prestige, a job, a home, a child to the ways of this world, a family member, or just feeling that somehow, hey, I got a university education and nobody cares because your job's gone overseas. Your career has disappeared and you cannot do the things you wanted to do. 
and we become depressed and despondent. If it's not depression, the second biggest issue that seems to come to people's minds is that of anxiety, worry. They worry about what is being taken away or what is threatened to be taken away. We cannot live in our country today and not fear for our jobs. Even government officials. I mean, as my wife and I have talked, we've said, gee, nobody's coming along saying we've got to take every other Friday off without pay. It sounds kind of nice, like, oh, a few more days off of work. And with that comes losing the pay as well. Then even the fear of, you've gone from 20 bucks an hour down to 7.75 an hour. Wow, talk about big changes. Fear, anxiety. We are, we are a, a nation that lives in fear and anxiety. So what is our solution? First of all, remember the greatest Barnabas in your life and in my life is our Lord Jesus Christ. He is with us at all times. He understands the pressures we go through. And he means it for good and for well. The scriptures tell us not to be conformed to this world. Not to have the same values of the world. Not to say that, oh, you want to know what it means to make it? It means to own a home. It means to be married. It means to have kids. Last night, my wife had, with threat of life, made me watch the Home and Garden Channel. And uh, don't let her know, I, I, I kind of like it at times. Um, but as we're watching it, I, I caught the phrase of a young gal who was in her late, late 20s, and she and her husband had just bought a home. And one of the things she said was, I'm 29 years old, and now I'm an adult. We bought our first home. Whoa, what a slippery slope. So if you lose your home, do you go back to being a teenager? No, you feel like a failure. You feel like you've lost. Nothing wrong with realizing we need a roof over our heads and all that stuff, but sometimes we place too much value in that. Sometimes we put too much power in the things of this world. Recognize our focus should always be on Christ. Our focus needs to be on what does God want in our life? How is he giving us a new chance to begin? The second encouragement in our life really is the church, the place you're sitting. You are more likely here to find a Barnabas than you will in the world. Because generally, Christians are encouragers. Not everybody, but generally they are. The research seems to say that most Christians generally tend to be optimistic. We live longer. We have... um, Better marriages generally, although we we suffer the ravages of this world as well. But overall, you're going to find a Barnabas in the church. So this is the place to be. To not forsake the assembling of ourselves together. Why? For the encouragement one to the other. We live in a world that basically wants to compare and tear us down. All they care about is what's in your bank account, What are you driving? Where do you live? And if we don't have someone speaking into our ear that that's not important, we get caught up in it. We begin to believe it. We begin to feel inadequate. We become depressed, and then we worry. We're full of anxiety. Christ is our ultimate hope. 
and to recognize the church as a place where we're most likely to find a Barnabas. In preparing this message, I thought about what's the plural for Barnabas, and I didn't think a Barnaby was the right way, so I'm just going to say a place for to find a Barnabas. The church, but not the big church. This is good. This is very good. It's fun to worship together, to sing together, to hear the word of God together. But you know where most Barna, where we're mostly going to find a Barnabas? In a small group, in a home Bible study. You've got to join. You've got to take the risk. You've got to make the effort to be there. Because in that person's living room, in that person's kitchen or their backyard, you're going to find someone who can listen to your story, whose heart goes out to you and can encourage you and say, hang in there. Keep trying. Go for it. And the third thing is to realize that our God is a God of second chances. Saul was a murderer and a persecutor of the church. He was given a rather dramatic second chance. His first time preaching, there was a riot. His second time preaching, there was a riot. Long gap in between where he sat on the bench. God called him back into the game. And it looks like Paul had finally mellowed somewhat. God is a God of second chances. Ever failed God? Ever felt God had his hand on your, on your life and somehow you missed it, you blew it? I've had a lot of people come into my office who have said, you know, when I was a teenager, I felt God had called me to the ministry, but I'm not doing that right now, so I just don't think God can really bless my life. I really felt God had called me to be a missionary, but I got married and my wife was afraid of snakes, so I didn't go. I know that was my reason. <laughs> God is a God of second chances. And you don't have to be first fiddle. You can be a second fiddle. Barnabas was a second fiddle, a pretty powerful one, who supported the church by his giving, who supported the church by his giving, by supporting his church by going, and supporting his church by believing in others. Barnabas, hardly a verse written about him in Scripture, but when you read about the impact he had in Saul's life, in the church's life, in the life of John, uh, John Mark. Praise God, he was there. Allow God to say to you, praise God, so-and-so is there in your life. Can you stand there and be that life for someone else? Get involved, believe in God, and go forward. God bless. Thanks. Thank you.